And this is a very short but very densely packed passage of Scripture, which time does not allow us to have a full explanation of. But it splits nicely into three sections for this morning. The first section is a warning against false teaching. The second is around boasting in the flesh and then giving up all for the sake of Christ. Overall, this passage is against false teaching and how to overcome it. The early church was plagued by false teaching where people endeavoured to maintain the Mosaic law and its observances within the teachings of Christ. In the early church, those who taught a combination of God's grace and human effort were called Judaizers. The word Judaizer comes from a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs. The word appeared in Galatians 2.14, where Paul describes how he confronted Peter for forcing Gentiles, Christians, to Judaize. A Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to truly be right with God, he must conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision especially was promoted as necessary for salvation. Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytes first, and then they could come to Christ. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through keeping of the law. This false doctrine was dealt in the Bible strongly in Acts 15. It says, Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to discuss the question with the apostles and the elders. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the laws of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their heart by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. In verses 2 to 3, Paul robustly describes such men as dogs and reinforces what we believe in Christ, that we are the true worshippers and that indeed we place no confidence in the flesh. Now in the Bible, a dog was regarded as evil and violent. So it's a strong term to use to describe the Judaizers. There is, of course, still much false teaching in the church today. And there are many different avenues 
where it can enter in and adulterate the gospel. We need to be very careful. Just because something is written down in Google or on Wikipedia doesn't mean that it is truth. Billy Graham, when he preached, often started any passage, he says, with the Bible says. That is our authority, the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, if it is not written in the pages of our Bibles, then it is not truth. Period. God's word comes to us through the pages of Scripture and revelation by the Holy Spirit. The prosperity gospel doesn't appear in the Bible. If it's something that somebody says the Bible is wrong, then walk away. Don't listen to it. Move away. Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel warns us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Most of the epistles themselves were written to counteract apostasy in the early church. So there is nothing new in false teaching. There are so many different ways that it can come into our lives if we are not very careful and circumspect. Paul goes on to cement his own credentials against the Judaizers. Paul proceeds to demonstrate that his background in the flesh is way above anything that they think they have. That he has superior over those men, could he choose to use it? He has held significant positions in the Sanhedrin and power in his life before he met with Jesus. Paul lists out his credentials for boasting in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day. In Genesis it says, Throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was Paul of the nation of Israel, he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was a favorite tribe among the Jews for a number of reasons. When the ten northern tribes had been scattered by the Assyrians, Benjamin voluntarily relocated and joined Judah. Jerusalem, the beloved capital city, was built on land from the tribe of Benjamin. It was also the tribe where the two sons of Rachel, Isaac's beloved wife, came from. And Paul, as we know, was originally named Saul. So not only was he a Jew from a popular trial, tribe who had participated from birth in all the proper rituals, but he was also named for a Jewish king. As to law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were the great teachers of Israel. They were zealous for the Torah, zealous to fight against any incursion against the temple, hence their strong condemnation of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The Pharisees often led young men into terrorist activities to defend the purity of Israel and the Mosaic law. To add to all this, Paul had been trained as a Pharisee by the greatest teacher in Judaism at that time, Gamaliel. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. 
educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And as the zeal, as we know, a persecutor of the church. Acts 8 verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts 9, 1-2. Then Saul, still breathing murder and threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And even, he doesn't mention it here, but we know Paul was also a Roman citizen. And he was born a Roman citizen. He hadn't paid for it, or he hadn't been given it. We can say the same thing sometimes in our churches if we're not careful. People can feel, because of what they are, that they are somehow better than those around them. And that gives them the right, or so they believe, to tell you what is the truth, or what their version of the truth is. As a Christian, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't spend time in Scripture, you will be tricked. That's why the Bible tells us to be sober-minded, to be vigilant for the sake of your prayers. It is imperative to read Scripture, to embed yourself in Scripture. You can't rely on what you hear from any pulpit, no matter how good the preacher is, once a week. You need to spend time in that book. That is one of the most precious possessions you have. But Paul goes on to say, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Having lost all things, he regarded them anyway as rubbish so that he may gain Christ and his righteousness through faith. There was a huge cost to a man who was at the top of his game in Judaism. There was a Pharisee, there was talk that he might even become the chief priest one day. Yet he regards all of those things as rubbish. All that time he spent training, persecuting the church, he counted it as rubbish. He wanted Jesus Christ. He was of far more value to Paul than all of his fleshly achievements. Being a disciple is costly. But if you are a true disciple, you should expect to let go of everything. Would that we would count all things as rubbish for the knowledge of Christ and to be found in him. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells us, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
And later he says, So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. That terrifies a lot of people. He's not talking necessarily of you hating your mother, but it's a question of priority. Now, at the start of this morning's service, I asked you, how did you feel when you were first in love? And I hope most of the men remember that it's your wife. Did you want to be with the one who was the objector of your love all the time? Did it physically hurt inside to be apart from them? Did you always want to be where they were? Were you really excited when you were traveling to be with them? Were they the most beautiful thing you had ever set eyes on? Were you willing to give up everything just to be in their company? To hear their voice? To touch them? To eat with them? Yes, even to smell them. Even that smell was enchanting. Do you feel the same way about Jesus Christ? And if not, why not? Paul felt that all he had built up over his early life was merely rubbish compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. Our modern life is based around largely our success in the eyes of our peers, isn't it? Our jobs, our cars, where we live. For many people, sadly, their identity is their job or the positions they work for in that company. The amount of training they went through. What transferable skills do I have in the job market? How big is my house? What street? Do I live in the right street in Amesbury, if there is a right street in Amesbury? Does it all sound familiar to you? I wonder, would we count that all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ? How many of your work colleagues know that you are a Christian if you haven't told them? They know it by your actions, by the way you live your life. You show that the things that they crave after are rubbish to you. God is not asking us to give up our lives and go out, as the disciples did, and go to the world and preach the gospel. But he could ask you, and never think that that might not be asked of you as an individual, but it is a question of priority. Where does Jesus Christ fit in your life? It is very obvious from Paul where Jesus fitted in his life. And for the disciples, look what happened to all of them. And even now, many people in our world are martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ because they will not deny his name. Do you consider your previous life as rubbish? The life before you had, before you knew Christ, to the life you have now. So many things in our lives can hinder our love for Jesus Christ. 
things, possessions, or position, even other people. In our so-called modern world, idolatry takes many forms. One of the worst, I think, in our society, and this is a personal, is the cult of the celebrity. We don't want to be like Jesus, but we wouldn't mind being like Paris Hilton, any movie star, or any pop star. That's what we want to be like. And that just leads to one thing, the white path and death. Are the things of the kingdom paramount in our lives, or are things of the world paramount in our lives? And it pays to be brutally honest with yourself, because Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants all of you, not just a bit of you, not just the bit you're prepared to give him on a Sunday morning. He wants every single bit of you. How much do you want to be where he is? Do you crave to be in the presence of Jesus Christ all the time, every day? Whatever you're doing, you can think on Christ. When you're about to do something, you can think, what impact will this have on people who are watching, who are around me, on my spouse, on my kids? Are you willing to give up riches to be found in him, I wonder? Now, Jesus knows we have to work to pay the bills, to pay council tax, etc. Paul had to work also as a tent maker. Yet, Jesus was everything to him. Is Jesus everything to us? He should be. Peter sums it up for us in his first letter. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Brothers and sisters, we are his people. We are all children of God. Does it pain you when you are not with him? Does it pain you when others blaspheme his name? You long to be where Jesus Christ is. You want to speak to him. You want to hear him. These things can be easily had. If we give him the precious gift of time and of priority, who or what comes first in your life? Did you count things in your life as rubbish compared to Christ? Slow down, spend time with God, and you know the more time you spend with God, the greater your hunger becomes for more of him. And you start to count other things as rubbish because they have no worth anymore. With the Apostle Paul and the saints who have gone before us, you are in really good company. Amen.